So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark's Gospel. We're going we're gonna to continue our study in Mark's Gospel. It's Mark chapter 3 is where we begin. If, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can find a red one on the pew uh, back in front of you, and it's going to be page 814. So if you're using that pew Bible that we provide, it's on 814. And, and if you're a guest, or if you're not a guest, if you're regular and you don't, you don't own a Bible, uh, we have right out here on, on the entrance table, and actually in the back there's these, these blue looks like this, these Bibles. If, if you don't have one, this is our gift to you. Take it, use it. Um, it is, we, we want to, to give you God's Word. And so if, if you don't have one, um, no one can accuse you of stealing because I'm telling you it's yours for the taking. So Mark chapter 3, we're going we're gonna to cover verses 7 through 35. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm, I'm going to begin by reading, reading the passage. So beginning in, in verse 7 of chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Verse 20, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he, that is Jesus, called them to him, and he said, said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside, and they're seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, in in 2013, a man named Larry Eskridge authored a book. And the book is titled, God's Forever Family, and and the subtitle is, The Jesus People Movement in America. 
Now, since I wasn't alive in 1967, I know some of you were, uh, I wasn't around in 1967 and, and the years that, that immediately followed when, when this Jesus people movement took, took root and, and started spreading. And so as I read that book, the stories and the characters, I mean, it, it, fascinating. It, it, it's an intriguing retelling of, of things that took place in, in Southern California and, and as it spread. And, and so the main point of that book is just to highlight the major role that, that this movement, the, the Jesus people movement, sh- played in, in shaping American evangelicalism, modern-day uh, American Christianity. That's the point of the, the book, but the reason I bring it up this morning is to highlight one of the main aspects or characteristics of the Jesus people movement that, that stood out to me. And so, so what, what happened, the, the, as this religious movement, as I think we could call a revival, as it took root in Southern California and it began to spread, what you had were these young people, these Christians who were being saved out of this culture that was, that was full of excessive drug use and extreme sexual freedom. Okay, that, that was the culture. 1967 was, was known, or is known, maybe not then, but it's now known as the year of love. Yeah, this, is, this is the time of Woodstock. This is when, when, when sexuality, you, you explore and you're free. And so, so these people are being saved out of this culture. I mean, they're turning to Christ, and, and they, need, they need groups of people to hold them accountable. They, they need the, these family to help them in their newfound Christianity. And so it wasn't uncommon for Christian communes to form. And so the, the book recounts several cases where, where you have three or four couples that, that they all join together and they put all their money together and they, they buy a house and, and they share buying groceries and, it, and it's literally a commune. Now, I'm certainly not arguing for reestablishment of, of this type of commune, but I simply want to highlight the fact that, that one of the distinguishing marks of the Jesus People movement was the familial relationships that resulted. They were God's forever family. They had come to Christ and they had these new, immediate, familial relationships. They were breaking with the old. They were communing around new, common goals. And it reminds you of Acts 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44. And everyone's saved. And it says they, they had all things together. They, all who believed were together and had all things in common. As there was any need, they, they met the need. And so in our passage, as we just read, we see Jesus laying the foundation for, for the original Jesus people movement, I would say. In our passage, we see... Jesus redefines the idea of family. And so priority is no longer placed on, on flesh and blood relationships. Rather, this, this new family identity, these, these new familial relationships, they're determined by those who do God's will, by those who follow Jesus. And so he redefines what God's forever family is like. So, so having, having introduced that, let, let's look at our passage. I, I've broken it down into three sections. So if you're taking notes... Um, the, the first section, we see verses 7 through 19, we see a growing ministry. And then, then secondly, we see opposition, verses 20 through 30. We see opposition old and new. And then thirdly, we see a new family, verses 31 through 35. So let's start by looking there at verses 7 through 19, the growing ministry, verses 7 through 19. So, so our passage this morning, verse 7, it, it begins very similarly to last week's message. There's Jesus and his disciples in there. They're retreating to the sea, okay? We, we assume that they're going there for a rest, a break from the crowds. But again, like last week, a, a crowd follows them. There's no rest for Jesus in, in this ministry. So notice verse 7 and 8. A great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and all these places. They're, they're following him. That's where the crowd is coming from. 
And when the great crowd heard all that he's doing, they all came to him. And so as, as Mark's narrative is, is continuing, he records that, that all these people are coming. And so last week we saw there, there's much opposition from, from the scribes and the Pharisees, but despite that opposition, there's a great number of people who are following Jesus. His popularity is rising. I mean, look there at verse 9. It gives us a sense of what's going on. Verse 9, he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him. Why? Hey, guys, get a boat. Well, here's why. Because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases were, were pressing around him. And so Jesus is afraid, these people are going to crush me. Get a boat so I can get away. There's only one person here who can walk on water, and it's none of these people. So the crowds are growing, and, it, and it's such that it's dangerous for Jesus. I mean, I don't know if any of you have been in a, a situation like this. Here's the one, the one example I have. Uh, when I was a uh, senior in, in college in 2007, which was the last time that the University of Virginia beat Virginia Tech in a football game, okay? if, for those who are counting, it's been almost 15 years, but the last time Virginia won, I was there. Okay, it, was, it was in Charlottesville. It was a home game, and Virginia won. <laughs> they won, and, and I found myself in just a matter of minutes in the middle of the field with people all around. I mean, there are football players beside me. There are, there are crazy college students behind, beside me. There was chaos and noise. I was in the middle of this crowd, and I, I'm, I'm a pretty tall guy, but as I looked all around me, I couldn't see the end of the crowd. Okay, and so this was, this was a bit frightening, I mean, how, how do I, where's, where's the end of this? Which direction is best? I was really lost in the sea of people. And so I think this is, is maybe a, a bit like what it's like as Jesus is falling. He's afraid he's going to crush, be crushed by the crowd. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you are, are Black Friday shoppers and, and you see videos, you hear stories of, of that experience. Maybe that's what it's like when the doors open and you are in danger of being crushed if you don't keep up with the crowd. Maybe a concert or, or, or something else. But, but that's the sense that this is no small band of followers. It's not just Jesus and a few people. This is a crowd, and Jesus is in danger of being crushed. And so, so that's what's happening, that the crowd is growing. And, and, and in verse 11, we see that Jesus, he's still casting out demons and unclean spirits, and, and they're still correctly identifying him. You see there, they, they say, you are the Son of God. It's, it's interesting that, that they're the only ones right now correctly identifying who Jesus is. No one else knows, but these, these demons, they always know, you're the Son of God. You've come to destroy us. And so he's still, as we saw earlier in the gospel, he's still commanding them, don't, don't tell who I am. My time, it's not yet. I haven't come to lead a revolt. I mean, if, if word gets out who he is, maybe, maybe people think, well, he's going to overthrow the Romans. Let's get our swords. Let's go. It's Jesus will reveal himself in his own time. He doesn't need any more fanfare. And so he, he commands these spirits, these, these demons, don't, don't tell who I am. And so as this crowd is growing, look at verse 13. Jesus makes some, some very practical steps. Okay, verse 13, Jesus, he goes up on a mountain and he calls to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so Jesus, he recognizes, okay, this is getting too much. There's too many people coming to me with diseases and, and demon possession. And so he decides to formalize a group of 12 men, okay, the, the 12 disciples. That's, that's how we know them. That's who they are. And, and they're, they're appointed. Uh, one of the reasons is, is to help bear the burden of ministry. He's one man, and so he's going to appoint 12 to help share the load. Now, the, the first thing I want to point out is, is that number 12, it's not insignificant. 
Okay, it's not this insignificant number. Okay, let's draw straws. Okay, I only have 12 pieces of straw, so you only get 12 people. No, I would argue that the number 12 is, is more significant than even the names of the 12. It's 12 people. It's not 13, and it's not 11. It's, it's 12. There had to be 12. In fact, if, if, you, if you read in, in the account in, in the book of Acts, when Judas is gone, there's 11, and the apostles, the disciples feel, we've got to replace him. We've got to have 12. And so there's significance in this number 12. Well, well why 12? Well, if you're familiar with, with your Old Testament history, the number 12 plays a pretty significant role in, in the life of, of Israel. If you remember, there was Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And then Jacob had how many sons? He had 12 sons. And, and so from these 12 sons, okay, th- there's 12 tribes. Okay, and then from these 12 tribes, th- this is the people of Israel. This is, this is God's people. They're con- constituted by these 12 tribes. Now, now for those of you who, who are familiar, now it gets kind of confusing. Joseph has two sons who, who are blessed, and then Levi doesn't get part. And, and so is there 13? Is there 12? Well, well, there's 12. There are 12 tribes. That's the bottom line. And so Jesus, when he comes... He's coming to establish the kingdom of God. He's the Messiah. He's he's accomplishing the salvation of God. And and here at the outset, he appoints 12 disciples. And he's doing so because Jesus is redefining the people of God. He's redefining. It's no longer about your Jewish ethnicity, right? When when in the Old Testament, right, you're part of the family of God by, by virtue of your birth. You're one of Abraham's physical descendants, so you're part of the tribe of Dan or, or whoever. Okay, that, that's your claim to, to being a member, a citizen of God's people was your birth. When Jesus comes, this is, this is a, a different thing. It's a new covenant. As the kingdom of God comes, these 12 men are going to be the foundation of, of identifying the new or the, the true people of God. These men, I mean, think about it with me. These men are going to be witnesses. Okay, so these men, they're, they're going to form the foundation of the new people of God. Specifically, here's, here's how they form the foundation. They're the ones who are going to proclaim the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And that's going to form the foundation. It's no longer going to be ethnic identity. It will be the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah, that unifies the people of God. And so these men will lay the foundation. And so when Jesus comes, it's no longer about ethnic identity. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or not. What matters is how you relate to the, the message of these disciples, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. And so he intentionally appoints, appoints 12. He's making a statement. But the second thing to notice about these 12 is, is notice the purpose of their being called. What, what's their job description? There in verse 14. It's, it's very clear why he calls them. He says, so that they might be with him, number one, to be with him, and second, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so he wants these 12 men to, to be with him and then to do the same things he's doing to be an extension of his ministry, preaching and casting out demons. And so these men, as I just said, they're, they're going to be with Jesus. His entire earthly ministry is going to be alongside of these 12 men. And so their testimonies, their teachings, they're going to be the foundation of the early church. They're, this is the foundation. And they actually walked with Jesus, and they actually talked with Jesus. I don't care how many times we, we sing, I come to the garden alone. We don't walk with him and talk with him like these guys did. They actually, they literally walked and talked with Jesus. They observed Jesus. And and so these are the the witnesses. These are the credible witnesses who know who Jesus was, who know what Jesus said, and who can testify to what Jesus did. These these 12 men are very significant. So so just by way of application, the the two points is first, consider the results 
of these first disciples. I mean, obviously, we acknowledge God is the one who gives growth. It's all, God deserves all the credit. But think about this. If, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, your spiritual biography goes through these 12 men. I mean, just think about that. If you're a Christian, your line comes through these 12. These 12 are the ones that, that lay the foundation. These are the ones who, who proclaim what Jesus had done. And so, so God grew the church so that now we have the church present all over the world, and it came through these 12 ordinary men. I mean, that, that's, that's pretty remarkable. But then second, consider the responsibilities of, of current disciples. Okay, so that, that was the first disciples. Wow, what an amazing thing. But, but consider the responsibilities of current disciples. And so whereas these men, they're responsible to continue the ministry that Jesus began, we now, as Jesus' disciples, are also responsible to continue the ministry that Jesus began and the disciples continued. And the foundation of that ministry, it hasn't changed. It's a proclamation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We're to be Jesus' people. That's our call. That's our commission. And so, and so I would simply ask you, as well as, as introspectively, how are we bearing that responsibility as current disciples of Jesus? How are you doing when it comes to bearing witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus? How are you doing as a follower of Christ? Can I confess... I'm not doing that great. I'm not doing that great at bearing that responsibility of proclaiming the death and resurrection to, of Christ to those who need to know. I'm not doing that great. But we're commissioned, brother, sister. So let me encourage you. Here, here's a thought that encouraged me, and let me hopefully encourage you. God used 12 ordinary men to transform the world. Do you think that he might be able to transform a couple of lives, one life through an ordinary man or woman like, like you or me? think God's able to do that? We have the same message, and even more significantly, we have the same Spirit at work in us as was, as what, as was at work in the book of Acts. So let us endeavor to make disciples. Let, let, us, let us witness as a church, as individuals, as members of the body. What an opportunity we have coming up on April 8th. I mean, that, that's, that's a chance for us to witness, to proclaim well, let's move on. So, so we go to section 2, verses 20 through 30. As this ministry grows, we see, much like last week, opposition to this ministry continues. And so in verses 20 through 30, we see opposition. We see some old, familiar opposition, but we also see new opposition. And so, so looking at verses 20 through 30, here, here's what Mark's doing, because there, we see two groups of people. So in verse 20 through 21, we see a group of people opposing Jesus. In, groups, in verses 22 through 30, there's a group of people who are opposed to Jesus. And, and those separate groups and very different groups, both groups, I think, are, are committed to stopping or to preventing the continuation of Jesus' ministry. So his family, we're going to see, they think he's crazy. So he's, he's crazy. He's got to stop. And then the Pharisees, they think he's demon-possessed, so he's got to stop. And so both pass, passages record this opposition to Jesus and his ministry. So, so look there at verse 20. So Jesus goes home. Back, back to his home base, we assume, and a, and a crowd gathers. And it says that Jesus and his disciples, they can't even eat. And so verse 21, when his family heard about it, we presume they heard that he can't eat, they, they go out to seize him. So they want to take hold of him, grab him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now, now a few things about this. First, the term family there, it says his family heard about this. It's a broad term, so it could just be cousins or, or relatives, but but in light of what we'll see in verse 31, where it's his mother and brother specifically, 
I think it's fair to include Mary in this and, and his brothers in this group who are, who are trying to grab him, which, which then leads me to ask the question, does Mary really think that her son, remember the, the angels visited her, she knew who it was, is, does she really think that Jesus is out of his mind? Does she really think he's crazy? Well, I would say yes. But I don't think it's for the same reasons that the Pharisees do. And, and here's what I, I think that Mary and probably her sons, they're simply afraid that, that Jesus is overly occupied with his mission and his ministry. I think they're afraid that this, this, son, of our, this son of mine, he's, he's stressed out. There, there's chaos around him. There's crowds. He's in danger. And it's taking its toll on my precious boy. He's not even eating anymore. And so I think there's, there's, there's some legitimate human concern here. But human concern notwithstanding, Jesus cannot rest. He's on a mission. He, he's just called 12 men to help bear this burden. The, the nature of his mission, he can't stop. He can't put things on hold. And, and so his family's attempt to seize him and, and pull him back shows they don't rightly understand what's at stake. They don't understand what's going on. They're, they're not helping this, so they are not helping this son and brother of theirs. They're, they're actually opposing the ministry that he attempts to do. But, but secondly, the second group... Mark, and he'll pick up that scene. So, so he, he transitions from the family there. He's going to pick that up in verse 31, but he inserts this, this other group, this other uh, case of opposition from, from, from the family to the opposition of the scribes. And so this opposition, we'll see, is a lot more serious. The charge that they, that they make against Jesus, it, it's, it's a lot more potentially damaging to Jesus. So notice there in verse 22, the scribes, we know them. Remember last week, they're the ones who want to kill him. Okay, so here, this group again, the scribes who came down for, from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And they're saying, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And so here come this group of scribes. So what, what's their charge? What are they saying about Jesus? First thing to point out is, is they concede the fact that he's casting out demons. You see that? They can't say he's not doing it because he's doing it. So they say, okay, he's doing it, but let's, let's question how he's doing it. They can't deny the fact that he's casting out demons. But their line of attack is to, is to bring two different charges against him. So it's right there. First, he's possessed by Beelzebul. So, so there's lots of debate on where the or, origin of that name, where it came from. It's debated. It doesn't really matter because I think here, Mark clearly intends this to be understood as, as another name for Satan. Okay, so when it says Beelzebul, that, that's just Mark saying through these scribes. These scribes are saying that Jesus is possessed by Satan himself. So that's the first charge. And then the second charge is that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. So they're related, but they're different charges. And so then Jesus, he's going to respond to each of those charges, and he's going to do it in reverse order. So there, in verse 23 through 27, he responds to the charge that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Okay, so that's, that's he responds in, in verses 23 to 27 to the charge that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And then secondly, in verse 28 through 30, he responds to the first charge, and we'll get to that. But then in verse 23 through 27... He, he, he gives them a parable. Mark says he spoke to them in a parable. It's an illustration. And, and Jesus gives it to them. He tells them this story in order to show the foolishness of their charge. Remember their charge. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so here's Jesus' basic point. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, that means that Satan has turned in on himself and is destroying his own domain. Right? That's their charge. Hey, you're, you're, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so Jesus says, 
if I'm doing that, if I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, would mean that the power, the kingdom of Satan, it's being destroyed and it's coming to nothing. A kingdom that, that's fighting itself can't survive. And so Jesus says, you scribes, look around you. Look around you. Everything you're seeing, all this demonic activity, these demon possessions, these diseases, all of this evidence is not evidence that the kingdom is dying. In fact, the more that I do miraculously and casting out demons, the more opposition rises. And so it's not evidence that I'm, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. It's, it's active and alive evidence that I'm, a, I'm an opponent. I'm an enemy of Satan destroying his kingdom. And so Jesus continues, verse 27, the fact that I'm casting out demons shows that the plunder of the strong man has come. And so in this, this, little, this little illustration, I think the strong man is, is Satan. And Jesus is saying, no one can plunder his house, no one can upset his kingdom until he comes and binds him. And so Jesus is, is telling these, these scribes that I have authority over the strong man. And, and I'm exercising that authority. So when I'm casting out demons, that's evidence that the kingdom of Satan is bound and, and I'm exercising authority. Satan's not divided. Satan's not attacking his own kingdom, but that doesn't mean his kingdom's safe because it is under attack by another power, by a more powerful power. It's under siege by Jesus himself who is storming Satan's ramparts and taking back Satan's captives through his exorcism. So quite the opposite of what these scribes are arguing. Jesus argues that that what Mark has evidenced thus far is that through his healings and exorcisms, the power of the kingdom of God is invading and overwhelming the domain of Satan. And so you're charged that I'm, that I'm, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. That makes no sense. It's, it's the opposite. With Jesus on the scene, the strong man isn't so strong anymore. The strong man is bound and he's helplessly watching as the true strong man plunders his house and rescues numerous captives. So clearly, Jesus is not possessed by Beelzebub, but, but then second, Jesus' second response to their first charge, that he's possessed by Beelzebub. So there we see in verses 28 through 30. So this is probably when, when I read this, many of you probably thought, well, what does that mean? So you see there in verse 28 through 30, a lot of ink has been spilled over these verses, and a lot of unnecessary fear and anxiety has been caused by these verses. Okay, so I'll say more about that, but before we look at, at how we apply this, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Before we look at that, let's look at just the original context. What, what's the context that this takes place? Now remember the charge. They've charged Jesus as being possessed by Satan. That's their charge. You're, he is, this man here, possessed by Satan. And so as Mark's readers, we know that's not true. Remember at the baptism, who, who is Jesus possessed by? The Spirit falls like a dove on him. So he's possessed, but it's not by Satan, it's, it's by the Spirit of God. So we know that. So when the scribes, listen here, this is important, they locate the power of Jesus' ministry in Satan, when they say that he is performing these miraculous acts because he's possessed by Satan, they're attributing the work of the Spirit to the work of Satan. Do you see that? They're saying this is Satan at work when, when it, the reality is God is at work there. And so they, they're not only denying that, that there's powerful supernatural work going on through this man, but worse, they're saying this powerful work, it's not the result of God, it's, a, it's the work of Satan himself. And so they're attributing to Satan the work of God. And so then in verse 28, look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
for, and here's Mark clarifying, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're often concerned only with, with verse 29, right? The second part of this, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? But, but don't miss verse 28. Notice the amazing truth of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now that, that's a pretty broad scope of forgiveness, isn't it? I mean, obviously, this doesn't mean that, that all sins will be forgiven, right? A better, better understanding would be all sins are, are able to be forgiven or all sins are open to be forgiven. So we don't believe, if you're a guest with us, we don't believe that, that all sins will be forgiven. Okay, matter of factly, that, that's what's called universalism. Okay, we don't believe that. Okay, we believe that all sins are capable of being forgiven. There's no sin that excludes you from forgiveness. God's forgiveness is not stingy. And so if, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is good news for you. All your sins are forgivable. And so whether you realize it or not, non-Christian, you are in need of forgiveness. Whether you realize it or not, you are in need of forgiveness. You've offended your Creator. You've, you've turned from worshiping God, and you've worshiped things that are by nature not God. Yourself, first and foremost. And, and so you, you're guilty before a righteous God, and you can't fix it. You can't fix it yourself. You, you, can't, you can't author your own salvation. You are helplessly dependent on forgiveness. But friend, Jesus offers you free forgiveness from all your sins. Turn from your sin and, and trust in Christ. All sins are forgivable by the blood of Christ. And so non-Christian, cast yourself on the mercy of God that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's a broad, broad scope of forgiveness, but, but there's one caveat, right? There's one caveat there in verse 29. All sins, blasphemies will be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So remember the context, okay? We're, we're gonna, what does that mean? Well, remember the context. Mark, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So he's, he's, he's clear, clarifying the scribes, the ones who are saying that Jesus has an unclean spirit, are the ones who've committed this unpardonable sin. Okay, do we have that in the context? Those who are saying Jesus has an unclean spirit are guilty of this sin. Okay? They're the ones who are guilty of the eternal sin, and it has to do with them saying he has an unclean spirit. So, so why? What have they done? What exactly have they done? So here, here's, the, I think, the most basic way to understand what they've done, they, they've seen, so these scribes, they've seen the clear work of God. Okay, they've seen Jesus casting out demons, healing diseases. They've seen the clear and powerful work of God through the Holy Spirit, through the person of Christ, through the Messiah. And what they've done, seeing this, they've refused to believe that it is the work of God. Absolutely not. No way that God is at work. They refuse to do that. They've hard-heartedly rejected the clear testimony of God right in their presence. And so in this historical context, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit denotes the, the conscious and deliberate rejection of the saving power and the grace of God that's coming through Jesus' word and deed. And so it's this conscious and deliberate rejection. They refuse to accept the work of God. The work being done for them that they might have forgiveness of sins. They say, no way, this isn't God doing it. And so because of the state of their rejection, right, unless they change their not minds about Jesus and the power behind their work, unless they change their mind and say, that's God doing that, unless they change their minds, they'll never receive the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? 
They, they can never receive the forgiveness of sins while refusing to acknowledge that God is at work through Jesus. And so as long as they continue believing that Jesus is doing the work of, of Satan, they have no hope. In this sense, it's an eternal sin. They will go to hell refusing to believe that God is at work through the person and work of Jesus. And so to consciously and deliberately reject the work of Jesus is to cut yourself off from the forgiveness of sins. By nature, that's what it does. And so denial of who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do necessarily prevents someone from receiving the forgiveness of sins. Right? The only way we have forgiveness of sins is through Jesus Christ, through believing that he's the Son of God and, and knowing we might have eternal life. And so if I don't believe that, I have no access to the forgiveness of sins. So as long as they continue in their unbelief, they're, they're cut off. And so let me be clear, let me make this clear. If you're here this morning, this is, this is prevalent, I, I found among young people, but if you're afraid that you've somehow committed the, the unpardonable or the unforgivable sin. If you're here and you're thinking, have I done this? I remember as a kid thinking that. Or if, if you're here and you're fearful of, of somehow committing this unintentionally, let me, let me comfort you. You're, you need not fear. There's no unintentional committing of this sin. Right? It's, everything about it is intentional and deliberate. The idea of, of an unforgivable sin has haunted the minds of sensitive people in all Christian centuries. But this anxiety is misdirected. As the context makes plain, Jesus' warning against disregarding his message by calling it satanic is a very specific deed. And so the, the one thing I'll say, one point of application is, if you're afraid of committing it, you can rest assured you have not and aren't going to commit it. Right? It's, if you're afraid of committing it, that's good news. People who commit this aren't afraid of it. They do it deliberately, consciously. They refuse to accept the testimony of Christ. And so the remedy, here's the other point that I'll make, the remedy for this sin, the remedy for, for any sin, is holding fast to Christ. And so even here, if the scribes changed their mind about what was happening in the work of Jesus, guess what? They would, they would have forgivable sins. Right? If they change their mind about what Jesus is doing, they can receive the free forgiveness of sins. If they believed in him, they, wouldn't longer, they would no longer be guilty of the unforgivable sin, which then leads us to our last section and quickly moving through. After according to the interaction with the scribes, he, he returns then again to the family. So Mark picks up where he, where he left off in verse 21. But now instead of simply saying he's out of his mind, now the family says, we've got to go get him. So they're going to go want to talk to him, maybe just reason with him. So there in verse, uh, verse 31 and 32, they, they go, and, and the crowd, I guess, recognizes his mother and his brothers. So they get, the word gets to Jesus. Verse 32, your mother and your brothers, they're outside seeking you. And so, Jesus, your family's here. Now, now here, think about what's happening. Jesus is teaching lots of people. His family, his blood, his flesh and blood comes, okay, and, and they want to get to Jesus. And so the crowd assumes these people have priority with Jesus. They're, I mean, it's his own mother, for crying out loud. He, she, she needs to talk to her son. And so they get the word. They assume, oh, these people are important. So they show up. They, they have the ear of this teacher. So they need to put everything on hold. But this assumption is wrong. This assumption is wrong. Notice verse 33. When, when word gets your mother and brothers are here, Jesus, he says, who are my mother and brothers? Maybe he is out of his mind, right? What kind of question is that? Looking around, verse 34, looking at those around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. It's not those people looking for me. My mother and brothers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister 
and my mother. And so think about that. When we read that, I mean, hopefully you're, you're, you're sympathizing with Mary, with Mary and, and her sons, right? That we, we focus on the exclusion. Are, are you saying they're not your family anymore? Right? There's an exclusion, and we focus on that, but I don't think Jesus is emphasizing the exclusion, but rather, notice the inclusion that's being emphasized by this. Remember, the crowd assumes that Jesus' priority would be to stop everything and go hear what his mother and brothers had to say. But Jesus turns the assumption on his head, and he says, I'm staying here. You followers, you listening, you are my priority. You are my mother and my brother and my sister. And so Jesus is redefining these these new familial relationships. And so in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, the tightest relationships are not flesh and blood. It's not birth that gives you this relationship. Rather, doing the will of God is the decisive, determining factor in kinship with Jesus. And so that's what he says. My, my, my family, it's not, it's not who birthed me and who I grew up with. It, it's who does the will of God the Father. There's these priorities in, in these new relationships. And so Jesus, he's not disowning his biological family. He's simply establishing a new society. And we know Mary would, would be part of that family, right? She would follow him. He's not excluding her, but, but he's saying there's a new family relationship that takes priority. So Jesus affirms that, that life under God is not defined by relationships in a biological family. One's ultimate devotion is owed to God, who is the head of a new divine family. And becoming a member of this family is open to all persons. All persons, regardless of race, class, gender, the only requirement is that they share Jesus' commitment to doing the will of God. And so as, as those who trust in Christ, we, we are God's forever family. We have, we have a new family, a family that takes priority over all other family relationships. Through Christ, we are sons and daughters. And so here's, here's two applications. Two applications that I'll close with, and I'm done. First, focus on family relationships. Focus on family relationships. The, the fact that following Jesus alters our priorities also means that following Jesus alters our relationships. This, this is why church membership, it, it matters. If, if you're a member here, okay, if you're a member here, if you want to join, if you, if you want to join, come, come set up an appointment, come talk with me, and I'll talk you through how, how you become a member. I'd love to talk to you about that. But if you are a member here, it means that you've joined together with, with other members. You're part of this local body. And, and that means there should be intentional relationships with other members that are part of this body. In this family, differences, there are differences, absolutely, but all differences are minor in this family. In this family, we ought to keep the main thing, the main thing. We follow Christ. That's our family motto. And so we pursue God's will together. And so what you look like, what you talk like, where you've come from, how much money you make, all of these things are insignificant or they should be insignificant in this family. Our commitment to each other overcomes all differences. All differences should be seen in light of the bond of unity. And so, so let me encourage you, focus on your family relationships here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Focus on them. Invite someone over for dinner. Invite someone out to lunch. Take interest in someone that you don't know. More so than saying, how are you? Take interest in them. These, these are your family members. If you're, not, if you're not part of this church and you don't want to join this church, go to a church where you can join and be part of that family. So focus on family relationships. But then second, welcome others into your family. 
If you're familiar, I mean, think, we're in a different time and place, but, but think about if you're familiar with, with the early church, with early church history, or if you're aware of, of maybe in Afghanistan, the, the, the life of Christians there, sometimes following Christ leads to an exclusion from your biological family. You know that, that we're, we're, we're in a pretty abnormal state where, where Christianity is generally, or at least historically, been generally accepted. Most places, that's not the case. Afghanistan, like we prayed for earlier, if, if you confess Christ and tell your family, you're probably not part of that family anymore. In fact, you're probably going to be sought to be killed by your biological family. And so imagine the joy, the comfort, the encouragement that this passage is received with in context of great persecution. I mean, imagine a young man or a young woman who comes to Christ and is threatened by family or friends. And so by following Christ, yeah, they've lost their earthly family, their enemies, but, but they've gained a new family, a bigger family, a family that's united by pursuing God's will. They're part of God's family. And so here at Fox Hill, let us, let us welcome others into our family. I mean, you, you may not know this, but there aren't many requirements to join this body. Right? Profession of faith. We, we want you to, to profess faith in Christ, to repent and be baptized. We want those things to be true. But, but if you show up here and you want to join, there aren't many hoops you've got to go through. You trust in Christ. But other than that, that's not much. But there's a difference between joining this family and being welcomed into this family. You see that? There's a difference. There's a difference between just joining and being welcomed. And so I wonder... What are the requirements to being welcomed by this family? What are the requirements that we have set up? Are there any? Are we a family that, that freely welcomes others in? What if they don't look like us? What if they don't act like us? What if they don't dress like us? What if they don't know our traditions? Are we a family that, that welcomes them in regardless of where they've come from? Do we welcome into fellowship as easily as we welcome onto the church role? That's a question for me to consider. That's a question for us as a family to consider. There, there shouldn't be a distinction. If we want to throw them on the church role, we should throw them into the family and welcome them. And so let's work hard, brothers and sisters, at welcoming others into our body. And so as I close, let, let's rejoice in the family that we're part of as followers of Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons of God, that we should be called the daughters of God. We sing about it. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as, as on this earth we trod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Is that true of you this morning? Are you glad you're part of the family of God or are others glad they're part of family of God? Let us rejoice in our family. Let us work hard to be a family like this. Let's pray.